Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, and we are an award-winning, chart-topping podcast. Thank you for that. And um, we appeal to people who value real, different dialogues about how to build a legendary business and a legendary life. And on this episode, uh, Akshay Nanavati is back. Um, He was with us on episode 142. If you haven't had a chance to uh, listen to that, I highly recommend it. And um, we have a very special conversation on this episode. He's a um, an incredible uh, combat vet, U.S. Marine. And um, his last episode with us was one of our top episodes of all time. But most importantly, we heard from a lot of people. They wanted him back because we had our first episode together uh, pre-COVID. It was sort of on the horizon, but I don't think any of us in the United States anyway, not many of us had any idea it was going to be what it's turned out to be. And so a bunch of folks have come forward and said they wanted to have him back. And specifically, we deal with how do you keep moving forward in the face of fear and adversity? Today, he's a speaker. He's an entrepreneur. He's an ultra runner. He's an educator. He's a nonprofit founder. And he's the best-selling author of a book I highly recommend called Fearvana. And I don't just recommend it. So does the Dalai Lama. (laughs) And he's also this insane, extreme athlete, frankly, extreme person who explores some of the most hostile environments um, on the planet. Uh, He enlisted as a Marine after 9-11. Since then, um, his job, uh, at least for part of his deployment, was he was the bomb-sniffing dog that walked in front of the convoy to make sure um, it was safe from uh, explosives. Think about that job. Um, He's had to overcome PSD, thoughts of suicide, alcoholism, and he's also put himself in many extreme environments since he's been a Marine that you'll hear us talk about. And uh, of all the people I know, he's he's one who is incredibly powerful, powerfully equipped to talk to us about how to get through hard times. And many of us dealing with uh, COVID-19 are having hard times. Um, there are many of us having financial struggles. There are many of us uh, who've had health care problems, of who've, who've, who've been affected by this. I have friends who've had this. I know people who've died from this thing. Also, for many of us, it's hard to watch this suffering, both uh, the health suffering and the economic suffering happen at such large scale in front of our eyes. And um, it can be very uh, it can be challenging. And I know for sure it has been for me. I've had plenty of uh, tough moments since this all started. And so uh, in this conversation, Akshay made a difference for me. And I think he could make a difference for you, too. And I would urge you to listen carefully to his ideas on how to change barriers with questions. It's a very powerful idea. Uh, go to Lockhead, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com. Check out the show notes for this episode. Learn more about Akshay, his books, his speaking, and his other various uh, awesome exploits. Now, one thing you know to survive in uncertain times, you need to be on top of your numbers. And my friends at Oracle NetSuite help you reduce uncertainty by giving you the control and visibility that you need by staying on top of uh, the critical financial information that matters in your business, your cash flow, your cash position, accounts receivable, accounts payable, where we're at with inventory, etc. All in one place, you gain the visibility and control that you need across every dimension of your business. Visit netsuite.com slash different today to receive your free guide, Managing 
business uncertainty. That's netsuite.com slash different. And you'll receive managing business uncertainty and you can get a free tour of NetSuite. Also, one thing's crystal clear, digital companies and digital government agencies outperform enterprises that don't leverage the power of data. And my friends at Splunk are the category queens and kings of data to everything. They help you bring data to every question, every decision, and every action. And I can tell you that um, companies and government agencies that are dealing with COVID-19, Splunk is being used in virtually every kind of use case that you could imagine, from major hospitals to major government agencies, trying to help hospitals do a great job for patients, uh, help with the supply chain, help in in the research areas, you name it. If there's a company or an organization working on uh, C19, um, somewhere in there, they're probably using Splunk. You can learn how to turn data into doing at Splunk.com slash D2E, as in data to everything. That's Splunk.com, D, the number two E. Now, hey-ho, let's go. I was with Weapons Company 123, and uh, they they served in Iwo Jima. I have in our Weapons Company coin. So in the Marines, they give out challenge coins, and it has Iwo Jima on there. And so it's just a tremendous honor. Now, obviously, I am by no means taking credit for that, but it's a tremendous honor to be a part of an institution that served in Iwo Jima. Iwo Jima, the tagline for that, I mean, not to say that battles have tagline, but one of the things they said about that battle was uncommon valor was a common virtue because it was an absurd amount of Medal of Honors and Navy Crosses that people received in there because of just the amount of courage it required to fight and win at that battle. And, um, you know, let's say I uh, paid no attention for a very long time, and I this was the first time I was hearing about the battle. Yeah. What would be sort of an overview of, of, of what you would want people to know about the history of, uh, of, of your lineage of uh, <laughs> American warriors. You know, just the overall Pacific campaign was a brutal fight that the Marines had to go through island hopping in in the Pacific because you won, you had a formidable enemy. The Japanese were a formidable, not to say that the sort of the European theater was easier, but the Japanese had a mentality that you don't surrender. So what would happen is you would have one, let's say they've taken over an island, but one Japanese guy who ordinarily maybe, you know, the Germans are the other, normally people would surrender if they had one or two left. One guy would be in a cave and he'd come back out and kill himself and two other Marines with a grenade, you know, because they had this sort of the, the samurai Bushido mentality that surrender was worse than death. And which is why they treated their POWs so horribly in, for example, the Bataan Death March. So for one, you had this enemy that did not surrender and would fight dead to the last man and take anybody down, right? The kamikaze culture that, that they had, that was one element. Two was the environment themselves, environment itself in the swamps in Guadalcanal, battling the the terrible environment. I mean, um, even like in Iwo Jima, the sand there. And um, I don't know, t- uh, you know, uh, too much off the top of my head from from recently. I've studied it in the past, but I don't remember too much now. But just looking at the environment and this, like even in Guadalcanal, just the, the swampy terrain, the rains and this horrible condition that they had to not only fight this intense enemy, they had to battle the environment as well. And that was challenging to say the least to put it mildly and i mean iwo jima they had to storm into storm up the hill right so you got uh, over oh, the 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 enemy has a sort of the uh, um 
overhead position and they had to they had to swarm swarm up the hill to take over and that's what they did i mean we won we won that battle uh, john Barcelona is a legend in the marines he was the he received he was a medal of honor recipient from iwo jima he's his like his name is legendary in the marines we all learned about him from boot camp and why is that image of those marines hoisting that flag such an iconic image i think it became because it symbolized our victory in this in this very intense campaign the entire pacific theater right it symbolized that these four four marines raising i think actually it was three marines and a corpsman if i remember correctly and now there's all kinds of history about was it staged and was it not was it real and from what i understand that it was real but then they restaged it to kind of shoot i think there was something like that and clint eastwood had a fantastic movie about it uh sands of iwo jima amazing intense movie well he made two one was sands of iwo jima and the other was letters from iwo jima but uh but yeah it was just very iconic to symbolize our victory in what was far from an easy easy campaign now um i really want to focus in on you um because i think we are living in such an extraordinary time and Mm -hmm. i think your experience both as a marine and since a marine uh, you've put yourself in some pretty uh uh, extraordinary situations one Mm -hmm. that most of us will never be in or probably be in anything close Um, and so i want to get to that but just before we go there, you and I talked a couple of days ago and um, you were telling me you're living by yourself through um, through C-19. Yeah. So uh, tell me a little bit about what that's like in, in your place in New Jersey by yourself with your, your Iwo Jima poster. My Iwo Jima flag. Yeah. You know, I've been used to living alone. Now, I was married. I no longer am. So it's been about a year and a half plus so I've been somewhat used to living alone um, and I work from home. So kind of my my life, generally speaking, is a self-quarantine. So in some ways I'm used to it and I don't mind the solitude. I've trained in solitude in the sense of, I mean, you know, I spent seven days in pitch darkness, isolation and still and, and silence to confront my fear of stillness, to master the experience of solitude. But at the same time, as we briefly touched on, you know, the in in these moments, I do have moments where I feel that that sense of loss with not to say that I, I'm, I'm moved on from my marriage and I'm, and, you know, wish her all the best, all that good stuff. But I feel this, like I do want a relationship. I want a family eventually. And you sometimes I well, you being me. I feel sometimes that, uh, that pang of those, of that loss of, of the loneliness. And I'm, again, I'm good at mastering it in the sense I can rise above the, the struggle and kind of get back to the mission, but you know, you feel it from time to time. And, uh, it, it's it is it is what it is <laughs> and you know um like i'm a very physical guy i'm a very huggy guy clearly i'm a very talky guy <laughs> um, and you seem like a very open very social kind of a creature right yeah and so i mean just what's it like not to have touched anybody for so many weeks, not even a hug or whatever. Yeah. You know, I, I, I am, I am, uh, I'm kind of this, uh, paradox is, you know, from my story, the duality, right? The two sides. So on one side, I'm very social. I love hanging around people. I'm comfortable with people on the other side. I'm also good alone, you know? So, uh, I, I do have a gym buddy. He's my only human contact really throughout this whole thing. He lives alone. I mean, well, he lives with his parents, but kind of essentially alone. And he comes over and we do just at home workouts. So he's a great relief from the solitude. We have great workouts together. We suffer together. We train together. And he's my human contact. He's a, he has a beautiful willingness to suffer as well. 
So, you know, I have a great time with him. But at the same time, I, I don't mind my solitude. Um, I, it allows me to do the work. And every once in a while, like my take on it is because as you know, as I was briefly sharing with you when we spoke, I sometimes wonder if I would, if I will find anybody uh, to in terms of getting a relationship, and I'm not necessarily actively looking right now, there's not dating is not exactly happening right now anyway. But, uh, <laughs> but I've also realized that I'm, I'm pretty intense, as you know, and Really? I don't, <laughs> I shocker, shocker, I know. <laughs> and so I sometimes wonder if that intensity will prevent me kind of getting into a relationship. And right now, if the way I see it is, I don't know where the road's going to take me, but in my intensity, I believe is needed to, to stay in this fight, to accomplish this mission. And I mean, I do things like I read, like at night, I read these horribly intense books to remind me of the pain and suffering in the world and to stay focused on my mission. So my solitude allows me to go into spaces that I would not be able to go into if somebody else was here, if that makes sense. Yeah, I get that. And I'm probably, they sure. probably think I'm out of my mind if somebody else was here. <laughs> so I don't know that the average person, Akshay, would, would read like super intense books about super gnarly or horrible situations as, as a night night story yeah no it's not a pleasant read the other night i was re falling falling asleep crying reading about this woman who was kidnapped as a sex slave in isis you know i mean it's a true story of course a uh, horrible what happened to her but incredible story again of her courage in reading that and i also i mean to me when when the world is intense to me there, that's a time to dig deeper into it so for example i just recently started a practice with what i do is to again master stillness of mind master solitude i put on uh, a strobe light and horrific death metal music like this is actually the song that people use to torture people in the strobe light metal torture thing that you know that we do uh, and i put that on and practice meditating while that is on so it's this horrible death metal the music the song is actually called god is dead or something i mean it's not a, it's not i wouldn't even call it a song it's just noise and i put on a strobe light and i meditate and practice stillness with it it was very intense as you might imagine but it's a good it's a good practice to master stillness in the face of chaos I mean, virtually everything you're into is something that there's not a fucking chance in hell I would do. <laughs> and look, some people say I do intense things. There's a scale, right? But like compared to you, like I'm a two. Not I might not even be on the scale. Yeah, we're gonna come. We're gonna come hang out, and I'm gonna I'm gonna subject you to my world for a week. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna subject you to my world. <laughs> I'm gonna chill your nuts right out <laughs> for a while. Although it would be fun to train some martial arts with you. I bet that would be, uh, that would be <laughs> trying to m move around a dojo with you. Uh, yeah. And it's always you 140 pound fuckers that are super dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> My master sensei is about your size. And oh, uh, really? uh, I, 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 to quote Mr. T, I pity the fool. <laughs> <laughs> And so uh, this is not the case for me, but if, if it was the case, you know, I, ha I have some people that I love in my life who are, who are currently by themselves. Mm -hmm. And so if I was somebody who was alone and, and maybe having moments of uh, facing, you know, fear or, or uh, being troubled in some way by the solitude, maybe mm -hmm. not as comfortable with it as, as you are, um, what might you tell me to, to get uh, more comfortable with my uh, COVID solitude? You know, I do think on the one hand, 
just reaching out to people, staying connected. And I've seen a lot of people do virtual hangouts. One of my friends playing virtual beer pong with his buddies, you know, so in some sense, people are even more connecting virtually as a result of this. So I'm not saying like, don't connect, but I think the problem is what, what, see what we're doing right now in COVID, we're doing the exact same thing we were doing before with the same mentality. And which is generally running away from pain, running away from having to confront ourselves. And now we're being forced into that world. So I think connection is important. Human beings are creatures of connection. We are tribal creatures, right? Evolutionary speaking, we exist in a tribe. But I don't think connection should be a band-aid. I don't think it should cover up the uh, from having to deal with ourselves. So I think, and everybody has to find their own line with this because it can get very dark. If you, I'm not saying do what I do. I'm not saying go into strobe light, you know, death metal torture and sit in dark rooms or anything like that. But I do think there's value in using this time to go into those spaces that you perhaps are avoiding. And those spaces are hard. Being silent with our mind is hard. But when you go into those spaces, you will come out on the side, on the other side, better off than you went in. And this is the thing though. It's, it's going to have to, you're going to have to go into the pain to get, to get on the other side, but that's really hard to do. And as a very quick example of that, you know, like a really tangible example of this, I think, I don't know if I shared this with you, but you know, recently I was on the Dr. Drew podcast and at the end of the, at the end of the show, somebody was calling in and she was sharing how she was going through PTSD from the Boston bombing. And she was asking for advice from Dr. Drew and me about how to navigate this. And we were talking about a bunch of stuff. And at one point I shared, you know, to that when the anxiety shows up to pause, be with it, notice it, like go into it, understand it. And she says something like, that's really hard. And I said, yeah, it is really hard. But that's, you have to go in there. You have to be with that. There's no easy way out. And that's the fundamental problem is that we're always looking for the easy way out. And I understand it because obviously it sucks being in pain. So we're going to want to get on the other side of pain. But the more you develop a comfort with that, it'll it'll be that much easier. I mean, like one of my favorite quotes of all time is Carl Jung, who says, one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. And such a profound quote. One does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. That means you've got to go into those spaces. So for anybody who's alone, I would recommend start small, five minutes, 10 minutes, sit still with your mind. I mean, eat, like you don't have to use a meditation app, you know, like guided meditation is just honestly, I mean, it's, it's a good bridge between someone who doesn't meditate and meditating, but it's just one more way to having to avoid being still with our own mind. You know what I mean? We're always looking for that. Even meditation now, we're finding a way to avoid the stillness. <laughs> <laughs> now, what if you're somebody like me who's tried meditation multiple times in his life, but, uh, you know, I have an ADHD brain and, yeah. you know, I got squirrels juggling chainsaws and I have other processes for centering myself and quieting. For me, it's got to be physical to quiet the mind. Okay. Right? That's why I love to surf and ski yeah. and uh, train and so forth, because when my body's engaged, you disappear and you have, you can, if you really disappear uh, and it gets super magical, you have that third person observing co third person consciousness yeah. experience where it's like you, you go away, right. And you, you're almost watching yourself on the wave or whatever. And yeah. so for me, the physical engagement is where I get to quiet the mind for me sitting in a room and trying to, you know, get my fucking Buddha yogi <laughs> super ding dong on is really like just not going to happen. I, it's just, I, I, I'm not going to do it. So <laughs> I feel it. If, I'm, if I'm that way, what, 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 what would you suggest for me to access uh, what you're talking about? 
So on the one hand, I get it. I totally respect the physical. You know, I'm an ultra runner, mountain climber, all that. Like I get it. And that is a valuable form of its own meditation. They're just different kinds. If you were to go spend seven days in a dark room, your mind would take you to some places that you cannot go by doing the physical thing. Because the physical thing, while beautiful and while its own valuable form of meditation, it is in some ways avoiding the craziness of mind, right? So I would recommend, I mean, I, I learned this exercise from an endurance cyclist friend of mine who what he would do is he would sit still staring into a wall for 12 hours and then go cycling for 12 hours because he was mastering the stillness of mind to see where the mind will go. So there's two kinds of meditation. Most people, when we think of meditation, we only do the first kind, which is every time a thought comes in, we work on letting that thought flow out and sort of work on being still, right? Like silence, silence the mind. That's one kind of meditation. And again, both have value. There's not like one is better than the other. The other kind, which is, I would again, argue equally valuable, but people don't spend as much time focusing on is where instead of letting your mind silence and focusing on eliminating the thought, you actually just notice the thought. You let the thoughts go where they go and you're not trying to silence the mind. And it will take you to some fascinating places. So when I did the seven days of darkness, that's what I did. I did an alternating between meditation of that kind, just letting my mind go. And other times where I was just working on constantly silencing my mind. So for someone like you, I would recommend set a timer for 30 minutes and go sit still into a room and just stare into a wall, see where your mind goes. It's going to be incredibly hard. Like first time I did this, this was way before the darkness. I set a timer for 45 minutes and I thought my timer was broken. I was like, I was this close to checking my phone. You know, I had it away and I was like, the timer's got to be broken. Maybe it's not working. And I'm like, no, get get in it <laughs> so again it's going to be hard but i feel like it will if you do this on an extended level it will go you will go somewhere that you've never been before so sit there shut up stare at the wall and see what happens see what happens and you know once this is over i'll go with you to a darkness retreat my friend we'll go <laughs> we'll go together <laughs> alone in a dark room by yourself yeah i tell people in the fearvana team you know how like companies reward their employees by taking them on beach vacations i was like not in fearvana we're going into dark retreats where <laughs> we're going into bullet ant rituals in brazil <laughs> just more suffering we're going to go find one of those outdoor toilet Johnny on the spot. And we're going to sit on that for 12 years. And then we're going to come out and like, if you can do that, you can do anything. Exactly. I'd like to help you write the website, trying try to market. This stuff. I know a lot of my friends are like, dude, you know, most businesses, they exist to solve problems and make people's life easier. Your whole business is based around making people's life more miserable and tougher. They're like, good luck, you jackass. <laughs> Yeah, this is the worst vacation you'll ever have at Fearvana. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome. If you want a horrible vacation where nothing happens, <laughs> we're the spot. Forget about beach resorts and all that nonsense. <laughs> the beach. Who gives a shit? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I, I went for a nice long walk on the beach today. It was particularly spectacular. Say that twice. <laughs> now, uh, the other thing that really sort of fired up in my head as we were talking the other day, um, I think many of us, at least at moments, and some of us for long moments uh, during C-19, for one reason or another, have had a very hard time moving forward. Mm -hmm. And I know that for myself, you know, as you know, I suffered a, a horrible loss about mm -hmm. six months or so ago. And then, you know, we stacked th this on top of that. Yeah. And the this for me, you know, I'm not particularly worried about myself and our family. I'll, we do have parents in the 
danger zone. So yeah. we got to keep them uh, focused and locked down. And so far, so good. Um, and, you know, there's going to be some economic hardship. But but the reality is we're going to be just fine. Yeah. Right. Uh, so I don't I don't have a personal fear. Uh, and I, I realize what an extraordinary bre- blessing that is. Yeah. And so for me, the big concern has been external to myself, but to the world, to my community, uh, to the suffering that we read about on the internet and see on the news every night, to the daily briefings. And of course, anybody with any level of empathy understands that those are not numbers they're talking about, right? And the images from Italy and the images from Spain and images from New York and, 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 and loving people in New York and having spent so much time there and, and talking to uh, dear friends in New York on a regular basis as this thing played out and on and on and on. It's, and yeah. If you have any empathy in you, that part of it is really hard. And, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And in our case, you know, we have found out and started by demanding some transparency from our local uh, leadership here yeah. in Santa Cruz uh, when we realized they weren't being transparent at all. And as we shoved a bunch of us shoved our collective feet up their ass to make them more transparent we saw a bunch of things that were really bad and yeah as you know when people are not being transparent it's really it's normally because things are bad yeah anyway long story way longer we have been in a non-stop fight with our county to get them to do the right thing for the better part of six weeks right now yeah. and it's been absolutely exhausting and so anyway i think regardless of what your circumstances are um, this has been hard. And for some people, yeah. it's been the, the ultimate yeah. economic hard. And for some people, it's been the ultimate, the ultimate hard. Yeah. So I, I, I think about you and you literally had the job. You were a human bomb sniffer. You stood in front of the convoy, however big the convoy was. How big was the convoy, just out of curiosity? Three vehicles primarily. We go out in squads. So unless we were in a much bigger, but generally uh, three vehicle convoys. Once in a while, we'd have many squads go on a mission, but mostly three. And one day somebody comes to you and says, hey, Akshay, want to be the guy who walks in front (laughs) and make sure there are no bombs? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know how I landed that job. Uh, I forget how I how I was the one who landed. It was me and one of the Marines. So to, to, to kind of elaborate, every time we would hit a danger zone, like a bridge, or something where they could be an IED, a bomb planted, like uh, let's say where there's a lot of sand on the sides, me and one of the Marine would walk out, one on the left side, one on the right side, to clear the area, make sure there's no bombs. And then once we get to the other side, let's say off the bridge, we would wave the convoy through. Um, I, but to be honest with you, I, was, I had no problems doing that. I went out to Iraq with the mentality that I was ready to die. And if that to be me, I'd rather it be me than somebody else. And that was not a healthy, way, healthy mentality by any stretch of the imagination. But I was happy to do it. I was could not have been happier. I was not scared of death. And I, and that's not a good thing. I think fear of death is a very useful and powerful thing. Uh, I, I would agree. <laughs> but often it's framed as something bad, right? People say don't fear death as if it's because if it's inevitable, we shouldn't fear it. I think that's a misconception. I think fear of death is like today I'm scared of dying. Today I am scared of dying. And that's a good thing. It makes me value my life in a way that I did not value when I went to Iraq. I was not scared of dying. I was ready to die. If it had to be me, so be it. Well, and, and since you were in the Marines, you've done some fairly extreme physical things that could 
very much led to the end of your life. Very much so. Many things, exactly. <laughs> I've almost been killed by falling boulders while glacier caving in the Himalayas to solo mountaineering uh, all over the world to being on a polar ice cap in minus 40 degrees and brutal storms that actually killed a British explorer the year after my crossing. So yeah, definitely put uh, have, have, have tasted my own mortality in many ways. And so of all the people that I know, you have a particular insight into literally as well as metaphorically how to move forward mm. in the face of fear in the face of potential death in the face of every kind of physical or mental yeah uh, stress you could possibly imagine and and sometimes you did it on purpose, <laughs> on purpose exactly <laughs> and so i think i think many of us certainly myself, there've been moments so far in this crisis where I have felt it's very hard to take the next step. Yeah. That I'm up against a, a, a massive resistance. Yeah. That I'm up against a massive amount of my own personal pain and suffering. Uh, and so whether it's, it's a resistance that I feel as a result of my own suffering that I've been going through for the last six months or so, yeah, or the suffering of others, which to me is is you know the longer so, I'm on the planet, the more it impacts me. Absolutely. And then you get this aha that says, you know what, this is not going well at the federal level. With certain states, it's not going well, and holy shit, our local government's kind of not doing this well. Yeah, And I had a moment, Akshay, where there's about a two days a few weeks ago when all this sort of came to front when we finally got our county to start being transparent and we realized mm -hmm. how bad the situation mm -hmm. was. Mm -hmm. It felt like I had a 400-pound guy with, a, with, with his foot with a boot on my chest for mm -hmm. two days. And I mm -hmm. went, and I finally realized, oh, this is what people call anxiety. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think I'd ever experienced it before. And so all that is to say, I think for some of us and many of us, for a whole whatever reasons, we have had a hard time figuring out how to get up and put one foot in front of the other. And you literally had a job where putting the next foot in front of you could have massive implications and mm -hmm. ramifications. Mm -hmm. And so tell me how you do that. How do you keep figuring out how you put one foot in front of the other? Yeah. You know, I do. I think this is hard. And, and I'm not saying this in an arrogant way. The reason I have an easier time now is because like, to your point, I've trained in it. I've been in situations that have forced me to, to, to navigate this level of uncertainty. And most of us have not. We live in a very controlled world, right? So pre coronavirus, we all basically knew for with some degree, what our world is going to look like one year from now, two years from now, there was certainty, there was control. And there's kind of this paradoxical thing that happens when our world establishes control is that we don't have to think about and exercise the muscle of control. So what I mean by that is when I was in Iraq or when I was in Greenland, let's say, right in Greenland, there were days when I would be skiing and a brutal storm would hit just an incredibly brutal storm. You're in minus 40 degrees. And as a result, now we're setting up our tent and you have to set up your tent in a way that it will not blow blow away in the storm. Otherwise, you obviously it would kill you. And that happened, like I said, to a British explorer the year after my crossing. He the storm a tent uh, blew off, and he was he got hypothermia and he died. So you are forced to exercise the muscle of control. You're forced to gain regain control of a world 
when it is in, when there's so much uncertainty, when it is out of your control, same thing in Iraq, right? You don't know what's going to happen every day you're going out on a mission. So as a result, you have to exercise the muscle of control constantly. And there's this, there's this kind of beauty to that. It's a very spiritual experience to be so present. You're not thinking about in Greenland, when you're setting up my tent in a storm, I'm not thinking about even the next day. I'm just thinking about setting up my tent so my storm doesn't blow away. I mean, so my tent doesn't blow away in the storm. And what happens is why I, why I thrive is because I, and that's kind of been almost my curse in the normal world is the inability to think that far ahead because I love the uncertainty. I love the danger. So to your point is when we reframe it, when we exercise the muscle of control, it's then looking back and then saying, okay, let's pause for a second. What can I control in this world? I don't know what the, we all don't know what the world is going to look like six months from now. More than likely, our world is going to forever change as a result of this. Just because the, the, um, the lockdown ends, it doesn't mean coronavirus has gone away. Let's say the lockdown ends tomorrow. It doesn't mean coronavirus has gone away. So our world is changing. Like even if my gym were to open up tomorrow, I'm not going to go to the gym tomorrow. You know what I mean? So what can we control? We can control ultimately in life two things, our actions or our attitude. That's it our actions or attitude, and more often than not, both. Now, in this case, we can't, when the world is putting us in a situation where there's so much uncertainty, we have less control over our actions. I had less control over my actions in Iraq. I had less control over my actions in Greenland. Now, granted, I chose to be there, but once I was there, like in Iraq, if your officer says, go on this mission, it doesn't matter if you feel like going to sleep, you go on that mission. You know what I mean? <laughs> you you have less control over your actions. So and, what can go to Greenland is not like going to a movie or an no, amusement park. Not at all. <laughs> I don't like it here anymore. I exactly. want to go have a burger and a beer. Exactly. You're on an ice cap and, and you're skiing eight to 12 hours a day. There's no out or you have to pay $25,000 for a rescue to helicopter come rescue you if you really want it out. And that's a, that's a big route. So you have no out once you're in these situations. So the, 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 the thing is to, and this is not easy for one to recognize that nothing I say is going to make it easier. And that's not my goal here. My goal for anybody listening is not to make it easier, but to help you give, to give you a way to handle the struggle, to actually a, be, be okay with the struggle, not to make it easier. And that's a very important point because everybody's going to want to get the, easy, the easiest way. And that's, again, that's normal. That's understandable, but that's just not going to happen. So bring it back. What can I control in this? Like do you, you said, you know, you will look at, okay, I can control reaching out to my local government. We can't control what the federal government is going to do. And to your point, you know, I got into a pretty dark space, which I think I was sharing with you when I was looking at the migrant workers in India who have to walk uh, 600 miles from the cities into their villages. And they're more worried about dying of starvation than they are of coronavirus. And when I read that, I got into a really dark space because, again, the, the suffering of the world is hard to fathom. But I had to bring it out and recognize I, I can't stop that. I can't control. I can't control all of this. But what can I do? OK, maybe I can get on a show and help somebody navigate their mindset around this. Maybe I can share Fearvana with one more person to help them navigate their fears. Where can I control? Where can I be of service? So you really got to bring it back to the immediacy of the next point of control the next point of control. And that's then, then, and that when you do that, it forces you to then say, okay, you know what? I don't know what the world is going to look like six months from now, but cool. What can I control today? How can I prepare for it? So engage all the fears, engage the anxiety. I'm scared because of X. I'm feeling anxious because of Y. Okay, cool. What can I do about that? What's the worst case scenario? How can I prepare for that? How can I help in that scenario? You know, so you're always engaging the emotion as opposed to running away from it and using it as a tool. So I can look at, 
okay, I'm scared that, you know, uh, um, my parents, something, something bad might happen to them. What can I do? I can't control the fact that my parents are in India. I can't even fly to India right now if I wanted to. What can I do? I can call them more regularly. My grandma is going through dark times being alone. You know, elderly people are navigating the mental health stuff. I can't control it. So what can I do? I can call her every single day and just say hi. You know, so I can bring it back to elements that I can control. And this doesn't mean you don't go through moments of anxiety, of course. It's going to be there. So there's two ways to navigate just the momentary anxiety. One is to find, I would call it play triggers or joy triggers. So to get out of it. And, uh, you know, so you do things like whether it be exercise, listen to pleasant music, hang out with family, if you're with family, whatever, things to bring joy. And the other side, paradoxically, but equally of value, is to actually go deeper into the anxiety. And again, this sounds completely counterintuitive to the uh, to the joy triggers, but both have their space because going deeper into it is allowing you to confront it, to understand it, to explore why it's there and what do you do about it. So sometimes, as I mentioned, I read these intense books. I watch scenes from war movies knowing they will make me cry because I like to stay present to the pain of the world. And it reminds me to stay in the fight. That's, again, my way. But there is value in going deeper into the pain. And I guess one more final point about it is, the perhaps I think the most important, and this is one of my favorite quotes also from Dostoevsky, he said, who said, the only thing I dread is to not be worthy of my sufferings. So when you're in suffering, it's on you to be worthy of that suffering. And I think perhaps the greatest example of that, Viktor Frankl talks about it in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. He quotes Dostoevsky, and he talks about people in the concentration camp who would give away their last piece of bread to somebody else who needed it more than them. I mean, these are someone who is tortured, cold, starving, and they would give away their last piece of bread to somebody else who might need it more than them. So when you talk about stepping forward, moving forward, knowing that the next step might be your last, even if it is, and if it in my, like in, in my case, if I was in war or somebody in a concentration camp, if it is your last, be worthy of that suffering and let your death be worthy of something. Die for life, die for something greater than yourself. And that's to me was if I had to die in Iraq, let, it, let my death be for so that somebody else may live and be worthy of that suffering. I think that's what it boils down to ultimately is to be worthy of your suffering. I fucking love you. <laughs> you too, brother. I fucking love you. So this, there is something so powerful here, which is when we stop focusing on our situation and try to focus on others. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I know it's been said a million times, mm-hmm. but when you actually do it, it's very powerful. So, you know, to your point, when I realized, oh, okay, so they're not being transparent because they don't really have a plan. Yeah. And there's a bunch of shit missing and they're doing a bunch of really dumb shit. Yeah. So our only, so when I realized we don't have a plan, the net of it is we don't have any ability to deal with any kind of a, a surge at scale. Yeah. None. Very yeah. small numbers we can deal with. And, and we're doing almost nothing about that. <laughs> and then we're doing a bunch of dumb shit because we're a tourist town to allow tourists to come here. Mm. We still mm. sell day parking passes to tourists. Jesus. Yeah. We haven't shut down our parking lots. Jesus. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. And then they come to us as private citizens and say, we'd love it if you could donate a giant amount of money so that we could buy PPE. And I'm like, what? Yeah. So you're selling day parking passes, but you're telling us you have a, like, anyway, it goes on and on and on. Oh, but you. if I go back to that time with the boot on my chest, at least what I realized for me was, all right, well, I have a choice to make. I'm either going to try and do something about this. Yeah. 
or I'm going to say, ah, fuck it. I mean, yeah. that's ultimately our choice. That's right? Exactly. Uh, yeah. And I mean, to your point, when you transcend yourself, when you focus on others, that's the best way to navigate out of your own shit, to navigate your own suffering is to, I mean, self, like Viktor Frankl puts it beautifully. He says self, self-actualization is the side effect of self-transcendence. So if you look at self-actualization being the highest human need, self-transcendence is everything. So use your pain in service of others to transcend yourself. And the, the best thing about that is it'll get you out of your own pain. And that's exactly what you're doing. You've told me how much of a difference you're making in the community and the things you're doing. And it's, again, it doesn't, it doesn't mean the anxiety is going to go away. I wouldn't be surprised if it hits you another day. That's just, that's, that's life. You know, it fucking yeah. sucks. It's hard. That's the nature of the beast. Nothing after, before coronavirus, we were going through problems after coronavirus. We will go through problems. That's the nature of life. The problems are just different now, but the problems will always exist. I remember when somebody in the last six months as I've been going through this loss, sort of described the Bible to me as a, mm. like a handbook mm. for dealing with suffering. That's yeah. really the Bible is a handbook for dealing with yeah. suffering. I never thought about it that way, but I don't know. Have you heard some, have you heard people describe it well, that way? You, you, uh, you gave me that book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, right? Timothy Keller's. And I've, I haven't, I've been in the midst of reading it right now. And he actually puts it profoundly in the intro to that book. You know, he talks about how our relationship to suffering affects how we handle it. So he talks about how in ancient cultures, virtues that were honored were things like that were valued were honor you know or we lived for honor or we lived for meaning we live for something in today's modern culture we pursue happiness and he talks about how that's a problem which i absolutely love and so resonate with i mean the pursuit of happiness is in it's the fundamental ethos in america right to pursue happiness now what is the problem with that when we're looking at pursuing happiness suffering is inherently a barrier to that Suffering is an obstacle in the way to happiness. But if we're pursuing honor, if we're pursuing meaning, if we're pursuing something service, you know, pursuing a purpose, pursuing what I like to call our worthy struggle, suffering is not an impediment to that. It's a part of the adventure. It's an, ine- it's a, it's a, it's an opportunity to learn. It contributes to the meaning. It contributes to honor. And in fact, it cannot give you those things without it. But in a modern culture, especially in a modern Western culture that looks to pursue happiness, anything that's a struggle is an impediment impediment to that. So we don't like that shit, right? No, oh, we, I don't want to be in pain. That's going to come in my way of happiness. And that's the problem. That's why we're paradoxically, and we're struggling more than ever before because we're avoiding struggle. And I love how Timothy Keller puts it. So I'm actually delving deeper into the book, but I think it's so true that the pursuit of happiness is the fundamental flaw of why we can't handle suffering. If you look at meaning, then this suffering, whether yeah. it be coronavirus or not, it's just one more opportunity to contribute to your life of meaning. This has not changed my own path. Like my meaning is is continuing. It's a new kind of suffering. And again, I can't complain. My life is not that bad right now compared to a lot of people as we know. But this, whatever suffering I may go through, it's just part of the roadmap. It's part of my worthy struggle and it contributes to it. Yes. And we want to be worthy of it. I, worthy I, of it. I cling to that. Yeah. And I also, I when I was a young man, probably around, 18-ish, 17-ish, 18. I sort of had a struggle with myself, you know? Mm. Was I, was I going to be a hero or a bum, essentially? I was failing out of school and life wasn't looking like it was going to go that well for me. Mm. And um, it was looking like I could grow up to be a quote-unquote bum. This was my mother's fear. and <laughs> I was tr- trending in bum directions. <laughs> I feel you. Um, and I also, my grandfather, when I was a little boy, he said, you're the bestest boy in the world and you could do anything you want. Mm-hmm. And so 
Uh, and he was, you know, a huge hero in my life. And so I sort of felt like I had this angel and this mm. devil. And and was I going to be a bum or was I going to live up to be who my, my grandfather and my parents, you know, said I, I could be or said that I was. Mm. And I remember making that decision. Mm. I remember where I was. I remember what was up. Uh, you know, I was on a walk. I, I remember the street I was on. Wow. Um, and I said, you know what? I'm going to be that man. I'm going to commit to be. I want to be the guy that you count on when the shit hits the fan. I want to be the guy that shows up. I want to be the yeah. guy that delivers. I want I want to be that guy that produces the results no matter what. I'm the, I want to be the guy, you know, that you say you want when it matters. Yeah. Right. It's amazing. To- and that's really cool, but it's a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> There's a burden of responsibility to that, right? <laughs> when the shit hits the fan, you're like, all right. Fuck. <laughs> am I just going to sit here and cry? Or am I going to drink for 12 years straight? Or am I going to saddle up buttercup and get this done yeah yeah that's a there's a burden of responsibility but that's amazing that you made that choice at such a young age and to now remember making that choice and like you said it's a hard choice i've been regretting it tremendously <laughs> during 2019 i'll have you know <laughs> yeah because there's a burden of responsibility with being that guy right to to where the people count on you then it's it's on you be that guy and that that's that's hard but i also think it's so beautiful i mean to me and i'm sure you would agree as hard as it may be i think it's a better call than being the other guy right drink and again i you know me i've been on the stage where i've been drinking a bottle a day and i've been that other guy and i don't really like that other guy <laughs> here you go <laughs> i've got my very large i love that they make jack daniels in bottles this big, <laughs> this big yeah <laughs> You know, and like when I go to the store, like I buy four of the giant <laughs> bottles of Jack Daniels and like I'm going to inventory up because you can't have any Jack Daniels crisis. <laughs> but yeah, for me, there's no other choice, but yeah. it's been, look, it's been hard. This C-19 thing is hard. The yeah. suffering of others at this scale is hard. And yeah. the the feeling like in, in our case, you're living with local leadership that's making bad decisions that could yeah. potentially have serious ramifications. Those are hard things to fight through. Absolutely. I mean, like yeah. you said, when we talked about it, right, I guess you focus on sort of that, that again, that cliche of that starfish story, the, the one starfish and you just help one at a time. And it, again, it doesn't change the fact that there's going to be moments where it's going to feel overwhelming. It's going to feel hard. Uh, but I also think, I think that's an inevitable and necessary burden. If you're going to try to make an impact in the world, you're going to have to deal with the pain of the world. And like, that's like, <laughs> deal with it, you know, in the sense, I'm not saying this in a harsh way to do it. It's that, that's the, the reality. Of it is massive. Yeah. So I don't know if you saw this in the news and I'm not sure I understand the reason. I read the, the announcement a couple times and it didn't write to my database. Yeah. But in, I think it's in the Midwest, if I'm remembering right. There's a group of poultry farms that, because they're lacking resources and mm-hmm. some other, I, I don't, I, I, again, I didn't quite understand why. They are going to kill two million chickens because they can't care for them. Oh shit! Wow, I didn't, heard, I hadn't heard of this. Huh. So, imagine if a company in America announced, hey, um, we're going to kill 2,000 dogs because we can't mm, deal okay. with them. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So we have eight hens. I love them. 
they're every bit as legendary as a legendary dog or cat. They have personalities and they're fun and they're funny and they're silly and they're all sort of, and they're a little society and I'm fucking adore them. I'm in love with them. Yeah. So I know how legendary I think of them as people for fuck's sakes. Mm-hmm. Right? Just like I think of the cats as people, mm-hmm. Thelma and Louise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And if you love an animal, it's, it's like loving a person yeah, and someone you love them more. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I have two dogs. Totally relate. Yeah. I fire up my web browser and there's the news. They're going to go kill 2 million chickens. Mm. And I go, Oh, that's 2 million Beatrices and, and, Mm. and Mm. like, what the fuck? And then of course that's nothing compared to holy shit. You just lost your job and there's, there's nothing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And holy shit, you just got diagnosed and it's really bad. And your spouse or your friend is driving you to the fucking hospital. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so we're, it's just um, an extraordinary level of shared suffering that's yeah. happening simultaneously. Yeah. No, people are dying. Animals. My, my mom's feeding stray dogs in India and she says some of them are disappearing and she's working on helping getting food to those in the slums. And also there's a mass increase on uh, abuse of uh, women for women and women who are trapped in homes with alcoholics you know so it's just and yeah there's a depth of pain in the world that can just feel overwhelming and i think part of it is you have to navigate just staying out of it because i mean staying out of it meaning staying out of the news to 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 consume it because it can feel overwhelming of course it's going to feel overwhelming you know and i think we and, each and have to find our own situation though Akshay. what if it's um you know we're a week away from having no money or uh, I've had this fucking thing yeah. for three weeks and it's, I thought it was getting better and now it's getting worse and I'm afraid I'm going to have to go to the hospital. Yeah. I mean, again, there's nothing I can say or anybody's going to say that's going to make it easier. Uh, and it's not going to feel easy. It's not going to become easier. The thing is, if you're in that position, right, a week away from losing your job of, or I mean, from the money or whatever it may be, you're in your situation diagnosed with COVID or whatever it may be in like deep in the, in the, in the suffering is kind of what I was saying earlier. You got to pause and ask yourself, what can you control here? What can you do here? Look for solutions. Ask ask people like one, one simple technique. And again, this is not taking away from the fact that it's going to feel overwhelming and it's going to suck, but there's nothing that's going to change that. Nothing anybody can say is going to change that. So a simple technique that I always like to do whenever I'm confronted with an overwhelming problem is turning barriers into questions. So what I mean by that is, for example, I was working with this kid who kept saying, I don't have money to go into college. So what does he do? Like a barrier like that is a statement. It becomes a wall. But when you turn a barrier into a question, that wall now becomes a door. So I don't have money for college. I don't have money for college. So what do you do? You get into victim mode and my life sucks. I don't have money for college, right? Instead saying, okay, how can I make money for college? Are there scholarships out there? Who do I have to become to be worthy of a scholarship? And you start asking yourself questions that start looking for answers. So this is, again, this is not to say that you're suddenly going to find an answer. You could be in a really shitty situation where you're on a week away from getting kicked out of rent and there's nothing that's going to make that go away. But by looking for answers, you can at least start finding it. You can start turning that barrier into a question and something might, may or may not show up. The more you ask those questions, the more you'll find answers. Look for people around you, get counsel uh, from people around you to to find answers. Because as much as there are people who are suffering, there's also other businesses and people who are thriving, people who are making an impact, right? So we can look at those things and see what are they doing? How can I learn from that? Asking the, asking the questions to, um, 
to to navigate the the suffering. And it boils down to the 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 what we talked about earlier is, and this is, and I understand that this may sound really. Um, it, it, I don't mean for it to sound like just a, a, a cute little statement, but it, it is so important to understand to be worthy of that suffering, you know, and that's easier said than done. And I get it. But when you're in it to be like, how, how will I handle this suffering in a way that will, to, that, that, that will make me be worthy of this? How will I be, you know, smile in the face of the suffering to suffer? Well, one of my mantras, as you know, is suffer well, right? It does not mean the suffering is going away. And I cannot restate that enough. It does not mean the pain goes away. It does not mean the anxiety goes away. But you can transcend it. You can use it. Uh, you can use it in service of others. You can use it in service of yourself. And ultimately, how you navigate the suffering will be not only how you experience it, but how you come out on the other side. And when you come out of this, like I said, the new suffering will hit. This will only train you to handle the new suffering that life throws your way. I, I don't know why I'm reminded of this, but. Uh several years ago now uh, uh a friend of mine got a uh, very serious life-threatening cancer mm. and he'd been married for years and he was unhappy and pretty sure she was unhappy and yeah. for whatever reason they never got on with getting a divorce and i think they were making each other miserable anyway he, he recovered from the cancer and, and he's doing great and oh, with a very yeah. spooky prognosis but here's part of how he got through Akshay. He would, he said, I would talk to God mm. and I would say, God, if you let me live, I promise I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to divorce that bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to divorce her the second I get out of this hospital, if you let me live. <laughs> and sure and that, enough, and that's what he, did. <laughs> he did. And he's one happy guy now. <laughs> But it's, whatever works it's funny what you, my point is you, well, yeah he sort of found a motivational crutch if i could call it I that. Got you. is that no that makes you know, that, that makes you make deals with god you, i you know i um i think faith is a very powerful tool my take on god as i think i can't remember if we talked about this is i yeah, personally we did a little bit. yeah i personally don't believe in a higher power god i believe god is the essence of humanity at its finest so god is our ability to transcend ourselves you know god is Desmond Doss pulling 75 people off a cliff single-handedly in World War II. God is a man jumping on a grenade to save his fellow Marines. Or, you know, God is a, a person sacrificing their lives for somebody or or, or working three jobs to, to put food on their table for their kids. You know, God is our own expression of compassion and divinity to transcend ourselves. So to my point is that I don't make, I personally do not believe like this idea that the universe has your back. Or, you know, I don't make deals with God because I've seen way too much evil in the world to believe that there's a God looking out for our well-being or the universe. It's easy to say the universe has your back. And there's a lot of people in the law of attraction world who say that. It's easy to say that when life is grand. I mean, I've spoken to people during this COVID crisis who are like, this is a blessing. And I'm like, fuck you, man. Like, <laughs> you know, like, don't give me that horse shit. This yes. is a blessing. Like, it's easy to say it in your fucking ivory towers that this is a blessing. But because everything happens for a reason. Like when you're when you're in the darkness, people who are suffering in like when I was in Liberia, and you see former child soldiers, people in absolute hell who have lost everything they know who are dying. God's not the fucking universe isn't looking out for them. And, and this is not just me saying it like one of the greatest books on this is when bad things happen to good people by Harold Kushner, he's a rabbi and he himself, a rabbi, a man of God acknowledges there's a randomness to the universe. 
But his point, and he summarizes beautifully, he says, to me, the surest proof on the reality of God is that when people pray for strength, hope, and courage, they find a level of strength, hope, and courage that they did not have before that. So I believe praying to God is accessing something within ourselves that transcend our individual selves. It's connecting to this uh, the divinity of, of man, the divinity of human beings, this essence of the human spirit that transcends me as an individual, because I'm not a perfect human being. None of us are right. But God is, if you want to call it that perfection to, to pause and allow myself to transcend myself in service of something, you know, to tap into that divinity, to tap, to call forth resources that allow me to transcend my own suffering and ultimately be worthy of that suffering. That's how I think of God. But I don't think I think it's easy. That, I, I think that that horse shit that the universe has your back is easy when you're in an ivory tower. Just go into the shit and go in to see some people who are dying every single day and tell me if the universe has their back. You know, that's just my take. Well, and you know, it's interesting. I'm I'm reminded as you talk of my discussion uh, um, with Jeffrey Kane, this unbelievable journalist um, who wrote this book, um, uh, Samsung Rising, and we had. We, we just, I love the conversation so much. I remember it when we had it. And then after we uh, dropped the podcast, I listened to it three times. Mm. <laughs> I just thought it was so great. But anyway, one of the things that he talks about, he spent some time in North Korea, like several weeks. Mm. And I asked him, you know, so he's describing it and so forth and so on. I said, you know, how much does it suck? And he says, it sucks a lot. <laughs> right and he describes it and so forth and and at some point i said to him yeah and, and the only difference between us and them is we won the lottery on the day we were born where we were born and to whom we were born and they just didn't exactly i mean i think i've shared this with you it's, it's same exact thing day one when i was running across liberia first day you know i'm running and this kid starts running with me and we start chatting while running and he lost his mom in the war liberia went through a brutal civil war his dad then left. He's now living with his friend. There were two kids who were running with you and were running with me, Emmanuel and Blessing, living with his friend in this tiny little village. One of them wanted to go to medical school. The other wanted to go to vocational training school. The odds of that actually happening were close to zero. And I remember after that run, like running with them for a little bit, just thinking like, what is the difference in me and that kid? I was born. I got lucky to be born with a good family in, uh, in India. Uh, and he was born where he was born. And how do you, I, I mean, to me, it's like, you know, I've, I've struggled with that for a long time. I always ask the question, like, why me? Why do I get this shit? And I always struggle with this guilt of, um, it's something I confronted when I went into the darkness is like, why do I get this life when there's so many others and so much more pain than me? And now I've stopped asking that because I can't pretend to have the answers to that. I don't, you know, who am I to even pretend to have, know those answers? But what I can do is at least try to make one dent in it. And if I have to fight and die for it till the rest of my day, so be it. But like to your point and to this guy's point, you know, why do why was that person born in North Korea? Why was that person born in Liberia? I mean, these these young girls who I work with who are victims of sex trafficking, some of these girls, they get, I mean, you know, the number of women who actually get rescued from this is in the single digits and percentage wise. That means so many women spend their entire fucking lives being like trafficked and raped over and over again. I mean, it's, I, I, you can see, I get, I, it, it, I, I can't fucking fathom that. Like how can, you know, it, it breaks my heart, man. And there's, I don't know how to, how to, how to explain that, you know? Yeah. It can feel overwhelming. The yeah. suffering of others can feel overwhelming and the amount of shit and evil in the world yeah. is shocking. It's, it's heartbreaking. It, it, you can feel overwhelming. That's why you gotta, <laughs> that's why you gotta bring it back sometimes to, uh, just be like, all right, what can I control here? Cause otherwise it's jarring and it can send you into a, 
some dark spaces, man. Now, I want to go back a little bit. You said some amazing shit there. Uh, turn barriers into questions. So instead of, uh, why can't I go to college? How, how could yeah. I go to college? Who would I need to be? Yeah. What would I need to do? Yeah. How could I find the money? Yeah. How could I make money, et cetera? Yeah. And, and you said if you do, if you if you turn barriers into questions, then I thought I heard you say you'll turn barriers into doors. So, like, yeah, a barrier is a wall. A question becomes a door. I love it. Anything else before we wrap, my brother? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, ultimately, I think all, all that good stuff is to say that to to embrace the struggle of it all, whatever it may be, whether it be coronavirus or not, just remember that this is not going away. And if you search for meaning in your life, don't search for, I don't pursue happiness, pursue meaning, pursue a worthy struggle, seek out. You know, I have a philosophy statement that guides me. I have a mission statement. I have a vision statement, just like companies have. I have my own personal one. Create a mission, create a philosophy that guides you and let that drive you and use suffering as an opportunity, as a training ground to fulfill that mission, not as a barrier. Because fundamentally, if you develop a positive relationship to suffering, life becomes that much easier. And it's hard, but it's that much easier to be in the hard, to, to embrace the suck of it all. So suffer well. My core ethos is suffer well. I love you. You're <laughs> incredible. Akshay, thank you so much. Thank you, brother. Stay legendary, as I know you will. <laughs> Well, there he is, the legendary Akshay Nanavate. Um, what an incredible conversation. I feel so blessed to have him in my life and, um, and to be able to share him with you. Uh, again, check out Lockhead.com for the show notes on this episode. While you're there, why not subscribe to our newsletter? Um, we're sending out some pretty great stuff. And actually, we sent out a, a, a great uh, post about Akshay. It's also on our website. You can check it out. Um, so, uh, subscribe to our newsletter and <laughs> get it out. Thank you, Akshay Nanavate. Uh, check out his book, Firvana, the revolutionary science of how to turn fear into health, wealth, and happiness. My friends at onelifefullylive.org, uh, helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check them out in the number one lifefullylive.org. If you're in marketing, why not check out my marketing podcast, Lockhead on Marketing? Um, what a name, right? It's a tip of the hat to David Ogilvy's Ogilvy on Advertising. And it's about the strategy and mindset required to win. Check out Lockhead on Marketing. Bottleneck virtual assistants, they'll help you scale you. And uh, hey, they've been physically distancing before physically distancing was a thing. Check out bottleneck.online for the power of a virtual assistant. And uh, want to get a handle on your revenue? and help drive some sales. My friends at Spiro.ai are the artificial intelligence sales platform. Check them out, S-P-I-R-O.ai. And if you need a B2B website and you're in Silicon Valley, visit A-T-R-E.net, that's Atranet. And if you're in a position to make a difference, you know now's the time. So please remember your hospitals, faith-based organizations, NGOs, and uh, one of my favorites, doctorswithoutborders.org. I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And this podcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. Warning, this podcast is not for wankers. We are produced by living legend Jason DeFilippo. And listen, I'm going to do a little commercial here for Jason. A lot of the top podcasts now have had to move to the Internet. And if you hear, and I don't want to name any names, but if you hear some of the top podcasts today, 
and they're internet based and they're not they don't have the benefit of the recording studio anymore they sound like shit and we're internet based and we don't sound like shit and that's because of Jason DeFilippo. Uh, Sarah Knox and Jamie J do technical execution, lockhead.com, and so much more. Show notes by Diane Gervasio and uh, our email newsletter. Remember to share podcasts, not viruses. Keep your eyes on the road and your hands upon the wheel. Uh, listen to Leonard Cohen. Thank you so much to the guys at squadcast.fm. They are the podcast platform we use. Check them out. Remember to only buy pasture-raised free-range eggs. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Holly Porter, Executive Director of Del Marva Poultry. Sorry, Holly, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much. Please say stafe. Say stafe. <laughs> if you're going to have a podcast, you should learn how to talk. Stay healthy. Uh, stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your different.